Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Thanks for your support on Patreon, Anthony Klon. Anthony was present during the Battle of the Downs in 1639 and cited the huge Spanish fleet 80 ships strong that were entering the channel and signalled Admiral Martin Trump to let him know the news. Good eye, Anthony. This, of course, is all a lie, but if you would like me to lie about you, you know where to go. Patreon.com forward slash when diplomacy fails. Or click on the link in the description below. Hello and welcome, history friends, patrons all, to episode 66 of the 30 Years' War. Last time, we saw how difficult the effort of coordinating and simply winning the war was for the Habsburgs by the late 1630s. You also may have noticed that I put in the years in brackets for those episodes. I'm going to try and do that for all the episodes so that we're a bit clearer about when each of these episodes are based. Hopefully it'll make the bigger picture a bit more clear, and hopefully it'll also make would-be listeners more willing to jump into this fascinating era that I'm sure we're all really enjoying. So, Johann Banner and his ragtag army of Swedes in northern Germany managed to outmaneuver Matthias Gallus's army, and the removal of Gallus's army from the Rhine had granted Bernard of Saxe-Weimar a unique opportunity to make some headway against Alsace. This just shows how interconnected everything was by this point, that in order to fight the Swedes, the Habsburgs had to leave the Rhine basically undefended, and Bernard didn't waste any time. In December 1638, he captured Breissach, and now the French and Swedes appeared to be getting somewhere, but this was by no means the major story. The Spanish, as we saw, were beginning to buckle under the pressure of the war as well. They'd been fighting intermittently in Europe since 1618, and lest we forget, they'd also been fighting the Dutch with a few breaks since the 1560s. Their resources were strained to breaking point. Thanks to problems within Portugal and also Catalonia, the straining showed no signs of being reduced any time soon. And so it was that Count Olivares attempted to do something radical. He'd send a flotilla of 80 ships to attack the Dutch fleet, thereby opening up new opportunities of supply and hopefully choke the Dutch out of the war. The Spanish-Dutch war, in spite of the French intervention years before, remained the main event in the mind of Madrid. It was imperative that the Dutch be beaten 
and beaten decisively if the Emperor's War was to be successful. In the interconnected world of the Thirty Years' War by the late 1630s, one theatre depended upon the other, and the Holy Roman Emperor had been supported without much enthusiasm or money from the mid-1630s. The destruction of the Dutch Republic seemed like the best remedy for these setbacks and Habsburg support. The exit of the Dutch from the war would free up soldiers to fight against France, and would hopefully revitalise trade from the New World, which would in turn cheer up the downtrodden Portuguese, who were becoming increasingly miffed at their Brazilian losses. Not for the first time then, the Spanish perceived the Dutch as the key to the wider war, and not for the last time, an ambitious plan was conceived to use that key to solve all of Spain's mounting problems. Would it succeed? Well, no. But there is much more to the story than that, so without any further ado, I'll now take you to a very tense moment in September 1639. Sir John Pennington had received his orders, but he did not have to like them. As the Admiral of King Charles's hulking fleet, featuring the latest in naval technology and paid for by the King's infamous ship money schemes, Pennington led a powerful arm of British authority powerful though it was, Pennington's orders were somewhat unorthodox. Unusually for an admiral in command of such a hefty fleet, Pennington had orders not to engage in battle, but to prevent two other navies from engaging one another. The task, as it happened, was completely impossible. Pennington would later thank God that fog and uncooperative winds granted him the excuse to take no action. This English admiral had no interest in butting in between the two navies, one Spanish and one Dutch, that were going to fight just off the coast of Dover. On the one hand was that enormous fleet of 80 ships sent out by Olivares in mid-September 1639 for the express purpose of defeating the Dutch at sea. On the other hand, here was a powerful and well-led fleet under Admiral Martin Trump. One power was an ally, the other a nominal ally, and while Pennington was Unlikely to have been informed of the diplomatic and strategic circumstances, he was aware that it was difficult to play peacemaker when two armed, floating behemoths wished to fight. Not even the departure of the son of the late Winter King, Karl Ludwig, could reduce the tension. Karl Ludwig ventured to Alsace, intending to request Bernhard of Saxe-Weimar's personal loyalty. This was a difficult task, and a dangerous one, but we imagine Pennington might have envied the Palatine elector for the simplicity of his mission. Pennington knew that to order his men to protect Spaniards could invoke mutiny among them, but a forlorn hope was that neither fleet would engage the other. After all, these fleets were in English waters. And a week after Karl Ludwig had departed for France, the battle began. This was the Battle of the Downs, but it was less a battle than a massacre. After more than a week blockading the Spanish fleet, Trump attacked on the 21st of October, and in the course of the battle, using fire ships and superior tactics, more than half of the Spanish fleet was destroyed. Those surviving Spanish sailors, who desperately sought safety when struggling to shore, were met with cold indifference, and sometimes hostility by the Kentish natives. Returning Spaniards would later complain that Kentish fishermen had plundered and stolen their possessions. Victory at the Battle of the Downs was a terrific result for Trump and the Dutch, but it was also a seriously problematic outcome for King Charles. 
Rumours circulating before and following the battle demonstrate the kind of regime Charles had come to lead. Suspicions of Catholic sympathies moved some to fear that their king wished to use the Spanish to impose his will on his rebellious subjects, but Charles wanted this less than he wanted to somehow balance the two powers which he had attempted to ally England with. Thanks to Charles's policies, though, several issues had come home to roost. The first and most glaring was the king's inability to eject these two foreign navies from English waters. The ship money levies had been brought about to make Charles master of the sea around Britain since... It would be very irksome unto us if that princely honour in our times should be lost or in anything diminished. Yet no effort was made to defend this honour, because Charles would not allow Admiral Pennington to risk that fleet which had cost him so much. The result was nothing less than embarrassment, because Charles was forced to watch while two foreign powers duked it out in his backyard without having any say in the matter, his weak protests being of no avail. As Pennington remained apprehensive, Admiral Trump had been given carte blanche to act as he deemed it necessary by the Dutch government. In fact, he was encouraged to destroy the Spanish as soon as was possible, without paying heed to locality or impediments of any kind. As Trump wrecked Count Olivares' brainchild and the final threat at sea to the Dutch Republic, the people of Britain for the most part rejoiced, proclaiming that yet another Spanish armada had been destroyed. Further humiliation for Charles followed when it was learned that his nephew, that Elector Palatine Karl Ludwig, had been captured and imprisoned on Cardinal Richelieu's orders. After waiting for so long for Bernhard of Saxe-Weimar to be of use to France, Richelieu was not about to permit the Elector Palatine to steal him out from under his nose. At the same time, Prince Rupert of the Palatinate, Karl Ludwig's brother, was also in Habsburg captivity. Indeed, that Palatine cause, last seen since Frederick V died of a fever in 1632, had seemed a little bit luckless in recent years. It had faltered, apparently for the final time, in the Battle of Vlotho in October 1638, in the course of which battle, Imperial forces intercepted and destroyed an army that was meant for the Palatinate. And it was there that Prince Rupert, later known as Prince Rupert of the Rhine and made famous during his acts during the British Civil War, well, Rupert was captured here, and the imprisonment of Elector Karl Ludwig the following year was a disaster for that cause. But it also represented a black mark on King Charles's reputation. The interminable story of the Palatinate, which never ceased to bother the Stuart family since 1618, continued to haunt King Charles more than 20 years later. As we said, Frederick V, the Winter King, had died in 1632, and the large family that had grown up around Frederick and Elizabeth, who was Charles's sister, promised that the Palatine cause would not stay quiet for long, notwithstanding Frederick V's death. Sure enough, Elizabeth called regularly upon her brother to act in Palatine interests, and yet in the developing morass of the Thirty Years' War, it was difficult for King Charles to determine the best course of action. Vlotho seemed to put the Palatinate mission to bed, hence Karl Ludwig's desperate mission the following year to co-opt the help of Bernard of Saxe-Weimar and become a proxy of the Palatine cause. But now that that mission had gone up in smoke as well, King Charles faced a situation where two of his kin were in foreign prisons. His subjects urged him to act, but thanks to two major factors, Charles's diplomatic approach to the Thirty Years' War, 
and the difficult opposition he faced within his kingdoms, the King of Britain was essentially powerless. When he had come to the throne in 1625, he had seemed a more energetic and bolder monarch than his cautious father. Charles had involved England in the Hague Alliance of 1625, if we can remember all the way back to that Hague Alliance, which also counted the Dutch and the Danes as partners. Notwithstanding the catastrophic failure of that arrangement, which effectively doomed the Danish war effort, King Charles didn't remain aloof from foreign politics. He stayed interested in and informed of the latest developments in the Thirty Years' War. Thanks largely to the regular petitions of Frederick, his brother-in-law, before Frederick died, that is, Charles was kept updated about the growing Habsburg supremacy and the thumping triumphs later of Gustavus Adolphus. The years since Gustavus's death saw Charles attempt a policy which his father would certainly have recognised, marital alliances with a Protestant and a Catholic power. With the sea lanes closed thanks to Dutch hostility, the Spanish came to rely more on neutral powers for the security of their shipping, and the English suited this role perfectly. Initially, at least, King Philip IV of Spain was willing to pay handsomely for the privilege of using British waters to transport his goods, and this closeness moved Charles to imagine succeeding where he and his father had failed, a Spanish match. The early 1620s, indeed, had been dominated by the notion that an English prince and a Spanish princess would unite in a marital alliance. A decade later, this was flipped around, and Charles's daughter Mary was put forward to marry the Spanish prince. As we've learned, though, Spain didn't possess much of a surplus for long, and shorn of her other securities, Madrid was forced to cut back on foreign expenditure. The Spanish incomes thus dried up, along with Charles's interest in a Spanish marriage. These developments all took place from the mid-1630s to roughly 1641, when Princess Mary was then pledged to Frederick Henry's son, William. In 1639, Charles was at the height of his balancing act. Before the scales fell and he realised that no more money would be had from Spain, the king enthusiastically pushed for a marital alliance, and he had motive for granting the Spanish safe harbour, as they sought to shelter from harsh storms, which rocked the Channel during the autumn. And Charles also had a motive for wishing to keep the Spanish and Dutch apart. This was because he planned to marry his younger daughter, Elizabeth, to the House of Orange, thereby reinforcing England with a two-pronged marital arrangement, and potentially serving as mediator to their ongoing war. Charles was also obsessed with his personal honour, to the extent that he resurrected the concept of sovereignty of the seas in 1634, and used the aforementioned ship money levy to create a navy to defend this supposed right of British kings. A monarch that publicised their intention to rule the seas around their realm, that devises a levy so that a navy can be created to defend them, and who even names one such vessel sovereign of the seas, would surely be expected to act when two foreign navies engage in battle in these very seas in full view of spectators on the English coast. But Charles refrained from acting because he didn't want to risk this fleet in battle, and because his diplomatic negotiations, far from an effective balancing act, had represented the worst of both worlds, which only tied him up in knots. The arrival of the two fleets off of Dover was the perfect manifestation of the king's diplomatic and strategic dilemma. He was forced to choose to save one fleet or the other, to choose one ally or the other. But in the end, he did and he chose nothing. 
We shouldn't imagine that the choice or solution was necessarily straightforward, though. Some officials, like the Earl of Dorset, the Lord Chamberlain of Charles's wife, Henrietta Maria, attempted to dress up the fiasco, arguing throughout that it was only sensible for King Charles to remain aloof from the convergence of the Dutch and Spanish fleets, regardless of the optics of that confrontation. The best way for Charles to defend his claim on sovereignty of the seas was to shrink from all challengers who might defeat it. Yeah, doesn't really make sense, does it? Dorset openly admitted that England was not in the same league as France, Spain or the Netherlands, and when he was informed that the Dutch, Spanish and English fleets had converged off of Dover, he wrote that If either of the first two have a mind to disprove the king's dominance over these seas, they might as easily overthrow it as dispute it. Driving the point home further, Dorset wrote I hope the king will at most be but a spectator and stickler between, for I hope God hath not so deprived those that are entrusted as to advise that the king should either confound the Spaniards or assist the Hollander to be greater at sea or the king of France at land. I pray God I may never live to see either of the two last the one to have more potency at sea or the other at land, especially in the low countries. They want not mines to possess this fair island. God keep them from means proportionable. Dorset was realistic about Charles's prospects and believed England would be best served by allying herself with none of the continent's major powers, including France, whom Charles had actually concluded an alliance with in February 1637. In September 1639, just as the Spanish were arriving, Dorset recorded his perceptive thoughts on the power of France, writing that, They are grown to that conscience and religion, as they believe all to be lawful that by power they can do. They are but overthwart neighbours, and can bid us in some parts. God deliver that kingdom from ever being under their worse than Turkish tyranny. Of course, it was one thing to admit these things in private, and quite another for King Charles to base his foreign policy upon what amounted to an admittance of his own weakness. More infamous than King Charles's diplomatic failings were his failings in domestic politics. The 1639 Battle of the Downs in the context of the civil wars, which were to erupt across the British Isles in autumn 1642, may seem a bit awkwardly placed, but the king's inaction in that incident was another clear manifestation of his powerlessness. He couldn't risk his navy because he didn't want to seek the funds to pay for another, and he couldn't risk war with either power because he didn't want to ask Parliament for funds to pay for an army. These considerations seriously hampered the king's freedom of manoeuvre, and meant that he could do little more than issue weak protests against the conduct of his neighbours. Being on the losing side, the Spanish were particularly unimpressed with King Charles's timidity, as Madrid's ambassador in London noted that the Downs affair had occurred in his own port, underneath his own artillery and before the eyes of his own fleet, and in spite of his announced intentions. By autumn 1639, though, Charles was facing a more immediate problem than the disgruntled opinions of foreign dignitaries. Scotland was close to erupting into full-scale war, a situation aggravated by the king's determination to achieve some form of religious uniformity with the issuing of the Book of Common Prayer in summer 1637. In the preface of that book, the king himself wrote that, It were to be wished that the whole Church of Christ were one, as well in form of public service as in doctrine. This would prevent many schisms and divisions, 
and serve much to the preserving of unity. But since that cannot be hoped for in the whole Catholic Christian Church, yet at least in the churches that are under the protection of one sovereign prince, the same ought to be endeavoured. This wish would not be borne out, though, as the Scots reacted quickly and violently, rioting in Edinburgh throughout July 1637, creating the National Covenant shortly thereafter, and inviting all Scots to pledge themselves to the document as Covenanters. A Scottish army was created, but it never came to blows with Charles because peace was arranged in June 1639. The king may have imagined that the affair would soon resolve itself, but in the meantime, Scotland pulled further away from his authority. Less than a year after the Downs affair, in August 1640, a Scottish army invaded England and, in a brief campaign, even took Newcastle. Charles was left utterly humiliated by the shattering loss, and worse for his regime, he was forced to summon the long parliament to pay for the financial concessions the Covenanters demanded as the price of peace. The religious concessions were implemented after, and it seemed as though Scotland had gotten away with defying their king. What followed this disaster is well known. In the following autumn of 1641, oh boy, the Irish broke away to form their Confederation of Kilkenny. Please visit Kilkenny if you have a chance, it's a wonderful place. And in the autumn after that, in 1642, England itself fractured and descended into civil war. Far from being in a position to aid the Palatine cause or choose an ideal candidate for marriage, Charles, it seemed, would be lucky to keep hold of his own throne in a revolution of unprecedented scale for the British Isles. While the religious elements underpinning the Thirty Years' War seem to have been mostly replaced by the mid-1630s with political and strategic considerations, Religious fanaticism was to remain an integral part of this struggle across the British Isles. From the eruption of Scotland's Bishop's War in the late 1630s to the creation of a Commonwealth under Oliver Cromwell's theocratic puritanical dictatorship well into the 1650s. Charles thus continued his father's regrettable tradition of an ineffectual foreign policy at a time when the very continent itself was changing. He had been unable to help his nephew, the Elector Palatine, and following the catastrophic loss at the Battle of Vlotho, it seemed possible that the Palatinate would never be independent again. But Charles's relative lack of a coherent policy towards the Thirty Years' War should not lead us to imagine that none of his subjects attempted to make their own mark on the conflict. No less a man than Alexander Leslie, a Scot famous for distinguishing himself in Swedish service, wrote to Charles's counsellor in 1636 on the subject of the Palatine cause, exclaiming, My lord, if it be that the restitution of the Elector Palatine can come no other way but by of arms, the nearest and most convenient way for His Majesty's project towards the advancement of that interest is Westphalia, where I should think myself happy to attend His Majesty's commandments and to do His Majesty's service with these people committed to my charge. Driving the point home further, Leslie added in a personal note to the king himself of his wish to undertake the performing of some acceptable service to your majesty, and that if Charles would only ask, then I should accompt my chiefest earthly happiness. But Leslie would not be given the chance to have this earthly happiness, because he wouldn't be given the chance either to serve Charles in restoring the Palatine family. Instead, Leslie was to play an altogether different role in the events that followed. 
after having trained under some of the most innovative commanders and tacticians of the Thirty Years' War, including Gustavus Adolphus, Leslie and many of his compatriots returned to Scotland in the late 1630s to put what they had learned into practice and play a leading role in the creation of a Scottish army that would defend itself against the British king. Initially, though, it was by no means certain that Scotland's continental veterans would align themselves against the king. After Charles made his temporary peace with the Scots in late 1640, discussion over how to solve the Palatine problem remained prevalent in the Scottish discourse, and Leslie was among those Scottish nobles chosen to direct Covenanter policy in this direction. Grand plans were envisioned over 1641-42, including the dispatch of an army 10,000 strong from Scotland to cooperate with Sweden in freeing the Palatinate from the Emperor's grasp. Unfortunately for the dispossessed Elector Palatine, though, it was noted that Karl Ludwig lacks money, not to speak of strength, good counsel and ability, and enthusiasm for a Palatine expedition began to wane. At the same time, the attention of the Scots turned towards the eruption of civil war in England itself, and by late 1643, the Scottish Parliament pledged itself in alliance to its English counterpart. Leslie and his compatriots had chosen to go against the king. The once loyal subject, who had once viewed service to Charles as his chiefest earthly happiness, was now the king's enemy. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. At the very least, though, King Charles still had his fleet, which was more than Count Olivares could lay claim to by late 1639. It had been a shattering experience, which the Battle of the Downs had only capped off in defeat. Closer to home, King Philip IV of Spain, like his British counterpart, continued to face the disobedience of his subjects, which led quickly to disaster in summer 1639 as a French invasion over the Pyrenees took place. The invasion was a success, and Salces, a reinforced castle in northern Catalonia, was seized by the French in July. This is a bad time for those of us who serve the king, and will always be so as long as the ruling ministers are so unfavourable to our nation, proclaimed one Catalan regent in Barcelona two months before. Olivares would have disputed this claim furiously, using the loss of Salces as irrefutable evidence of the Catalan treachery. The French invasion had not been a surprise, after all, and Madrid had prepared an army to defend Catalonia from the enemy in the spring of 1639. Better that the Catalans should complain than that we should all weep, 
Olivares had said ominously in June, after sending the recruits from Castile to defend the troublesome province. The new army was tasked with frustrating any French incursions, and the soldiers would be wholly reliant upon Catalan provisions and money as they prepared themselves. However, as it was quartered in the region, the Castilians found Catalans so unwilling to part with those provisions or money to help the troops that desertion and disease began to plague the entire enterprise. Just at the right moment, then, the French arrived and seized Salsas on the frontier of Catalonia, thereby securing an outpost where further attacks could be launched. Olvarez was apoplectic when he learned of this disaster. By now I am at my wit's end, but I say, and I shall still be saying on my deathbed, that if the constitutions do not allow this, then the devil take the constitutions. We must settle matters in Catalonia in such a manner that no obstructions are placed in the way of your majesty's service. We always have to discover what the customary usage is, even when it is a question of the supreme law of necessity, of the actual preservation and defence of the province. And yet, the problems only grew worse. Olivares may have viewed the assembly of a powerful armada as the silver bullet to Spain's multifaceted problems, but kitting out such a large fleet in the first place was supremely expensive and not even guaranteed to solve all those problems. Nonetheless, when the fleet set out on the 15th of September 1639, it was met with disaster a month later, as we know. Olivares could and did cry foul. He blamed King Charles, even though the king had been painfully strict in his observation of neutrality. Admiral Pennington was even temporarily imprisoned to satisfy Olivares' demands, but this weak fop to Spain did little to solve the Count Duke's problems or endear Charles to his subjects. The consequences caused something of a vicious cycle for the Count Duke, because with this disaster weighing down on his mind, Olivares approached the Catalonian question with even less patience than before in early 1640, ordering the new viceroy there to dispense with the Catalonian privileges, ignore the constitutions, and imprison anyone who got in his way. Two councillors from Barcelona were dutifully locked up, and when Catalonia did not erupt into revolt, Olivares felt confident to poke the bear once more. In March 1640, Olivares ordered that an army of 6,000 be levied at the expense of the Catalans, and that Castile would henceforth be unwilling even to share the burden of this army's maintenance. With such a stiff, unbending policy, Olivares believed he was demonstrating the unbending will of Madrid, but in effect, the provocation sent the province over the edge. After a poor harvest and painful drought, Catalans had even less to spare than before, but Olivares refused either to investigate or to listen. Even when one Castilian observer reported back the following, The province is very different from the others. It contains a villainous populace which can easily be excited to violence, and the more it is pressed, the harder it resists. For this reason, actions which would be sufficient to make the inhabitants of any other province submit to orders of any kind from above only succeed in exasperating the inhabitants of this province and in making them insist more stubbornly on the proper observance of their laws. The following month, reports were received in Madrid that Catalans had attacked royal regiments, and when these soldiers reciprocated by raising a recalcitrant farmer's village, the situation exploded. By late May 1640, most of Catalonia was in revolt against Madrid, and in June, 
those rebels stormed Barcelona, killing the Viceroy there and announcing plans to liberate the rest of the province from Spanish rule. It was make or break time for Olivares. It was not too late to save the situation if he decided how to respectfully deal with the Catalans as loyal subjects. But instead, the Count Duke upped the ante, announcing his intentions to send in an army to suppress the revolt. When this was done, Olivares declared, the constitutions of Catalonia would be abolished permanently to send a message. This was, you might be unsurprised to learn, as disastrous a policy decision as could possibly have been made, and it also forced Catalan moderates into the camp of Catalan rebels. Even more catastrophic for Olivares, it forced those same rebels into the willing, open, gleeful arms of the French. The Spanish position had plainly collapsed. October 1639 began with Spanish ships sinking beneath the waves. By the following year, though, it seemed likely that Spain itself would sink beneath the tides of history. That's going to do it for this installment of the 30 Years War History, friends. Do you want to read more of the 30 Years War? Do you have some time on your hands? Are you a researcher or a student or a history podcaster? Well, make sure you check out Perligo, where you can access many 30 Years War books for a small fee every month or for less than $100 a year. It's really good value, and you can also get an even better deal by using my link that you can find in the description below. Thanks for listening, guys, and thank you also for listening to those previous two episodes where I spelled out what I plan to do with this podcast into the future and where I talked about my 10 favorite guests on this show. Make sure and check that out if you're interested. But for now, until we speak again, my name is Zach, and this has been episode 66 of the 30 Years War. You're great, I really appreciate you, and I'll be seeing you all soon. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.